Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. What a blessing it is that we may be here again to join together in the worship of our triune God. Welcome to all who are present here and to all those who have joined us via the live stream this afternoon. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ, and cause us to live our lives to the praise of him. Consistory has the following announcement. Adam and Chameen Sibim have requested an attestation to the Free Reformed Church of Kelmscott, and we wish them the Lord's blessing in their new congregation. And this afternoon, the worship service will be led by Reverend Poppy. Before we commence the worship, let us sing together from hymn 7, verses 1 and 4. sisters, please rise and let's worship the Lord. As the people of God, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Receive his blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing a song of praise to our God. We're going to sing of the the glory of God's justice, Psalm 99, verses 1, 2, and 3.
It's now a profession of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. This afternoon we're going to do so with the words of the Apostles' Creed as set to music in hymn one. Let's now pray to God and let's ask God for his blessing. Mighty God and Father in heaven, we praise you that you are the king, throned on cherubim. We stand in awe of you because of your majesty. You're exalted over every nation. Your name is awesome and glorious. One of the great ways in which you've made your name so awesome is through the exercise of your justice. Father, you are a God who is just in all his dealings. You are righteous. You always do what's right. And you are just in that you always ensure that if, if there is evil or wickedness that's done, that you make sure that, that righteousness or that justice is exercised so that righteousness is restored. Father, we thank you that you have the power to do this. We honor you that you have the wisdom to know how to bring it to pass. And we stand in awe of you that as your people, that we can experience your righteousness and your justice in our lives. Father, this afternoon we're going to open your word and to consider this aspect of your character. And we pray, Lord, that you give us open hearts, that we stand in awe of you, that we realize that those who act in, in wickedness, those who are evil, those who oppress and malign others will never get away with their wickedness, but you will do what it takes in order to set things right. In your wisdom and in your, your justice, you will ensure that righteousness ensues. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that the songs that we sing, the prayers that we offer, that the thank offerings we bring before you may be acceptable in your sight, that we would worship you with glad and sincere hearts. We're so thankful that you give us your word and that through your word you draw us near to you, 
and you reveal your character to us, and you conform us to your image. Please work powerfully in our hearts with your Holy Spirit. We also ask, Father, that you would forgive us for all our sins. We're sorry for the ways that we've offended you on this day, and we pray that for Jesus' sake, that you would take it away from us, that you wash us clean, and that you show us mercy. In his name we pray. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, this afternoon I may preach God's word to you. We're going to look at Lord's Day 4. It's a summary of the, the biblical teaching about the justice of God. There's three questions that are asked there. In Lord's Day 4, the, real, the core issue is, is there some way that we can get away from God's judgment? And one of the psalms that celebrates the justice of God, that speaks about this, is Psalm 99. So, let's first read together from the scriptures from Psalm 99. So you can find that on page 592 of your guest Bible. In Psalm 99, there the word of God says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he, that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So far. Let's sing now of this, this righteousness, this justice of the Lord. Another psalm that celebrates this is Psalm 98. We're going to sing together the verses 1 and 2.
this afternoon we will consider the justice of the Lord. We'll do so by looking at what the church has summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find that on page 520 of your Book of Praise. So in Lord's Day 4, the first question asks, but does God not do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he is able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly angry with our original as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Then after the proclamation of God's word, we're going to sing together from hymn 14, the verses 1, 2, 3, 6, and 10. Dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a society that has an aversion to punishment. In the past hundred years, most jurisdictions in this world have gotten rid of capital punishment. You can no longer execute a person for the crimes that they commit. In a similar way, it's also not in vogue to use corporal punishment. At one time, if someone did something wrong, then one of the punishments that the state might execute is corporal punishment. They would give the person a beating. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. The Lord never, he never gives it as a, a punishment. He never spells it out in any place in the scriptures. But in Deuteronomy 25, he says, if someone is to be beaten, then it must happen right then and there in the presence of the judge. And actually, if you, if you go back to the ancient Near East and the cultures around Israel, this was a very common thing. Most cultures at the time, they included some kind of corporal punishment. And during the history of the world, this was a common punishment. If you did something wrong, then it wouldn't be out of the ordinary that you could receive a beating. Well, these days, that simply doesn't happen anymore. Not on a state level. It used to happen at school, used to get the strap. Maybe some of the old timers remember, remember that. If you're naughty, the principal will get the strap out. Still happened in the days when I was a kid. Well, these days that doesn't happen anymore. Can't do that. And even spanking your child. It's still legal here in WA, but there's more and more jurisdictions in the world where that's illegal. New Zealand visited there a couple of years ago. They just passed the law at the time that it's illegal to spank your child. 
That's, that's against the law. Well, you wonder about that, you read about that, you kind of wonder, you think, well, why is that? Why is aversion to punishment, especially corporal punishment? Well, it seems there's a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons, if you talk to those people who work in child protection, then they are, most of those people are just very strongly opposed to any kind of corporal punishment. They want to get rid of spanking. They want to get rid of any kind of punishment. And the reason for that is because they've seen it happen too often that people in their care, they have a parent who's, who's drunk or who's high or who's emotionally unstable and they beat their children. And then they, they say that this is just an aspect of disciplining their child. We can understand in that kind of abuse that some people want to get rid of it. Another reason is because we live in a therapeutic culture. These days, if you commit a crime, then one of the predominant questions that gets asked is, well, what led the person to commit such a crime? You know, the view is that we're products of our society, we're products of our, of our environment, and so if you're committing a certain crime, then there must be something in your childhood, in your youth, in your background that led you to do that. And so the, the thinking these days is let's go light on the punishment, we'll give a light sentence, but in the meantime what we'll do is we'll try to, to understand, we'll try to educate, we'll try to support and counsel and help and fund whatever's necessary in order to get this person the help that they need so that things go better for them. And so instead of punishing people, we help them. I wonder if there's also another reason. We live in a culture that that has little respect for those who are in authority. It used to be a time that, that the king was supreme, that his word was law, and that he could execute a person if that's what he decided to do. Well, that doesn't happen. We live in a culture that has a very low view of those who are in authority. We actually we live in a time where it's commonplace to, to mock and to deride and to make fun of those who are in positions of authority. Well, if that's the norm, then you can understand that it's difficult for those in positions of authority to, to justly exercise punishment and judgment in the way that they ought. And I'm sure if you thought about it that you could think a number of other reasons why people resist the idea of punishment. But you know, if you look in the scriptures, then you see that the Lord is a God of justice. He's a God who exercises his wrath against those who do evil. And when the Bible presents it, the Bible doesn't kind of try to hide that and kind of try to suggest that this is part of God's character that we need to kind of keep out of the limelight. Well, the Bible celebrates the justice of God. This is one of the highlights of his character. We worship a God who's righteous. He always does what's right. He celebrates what's right. We worship a God who hates evil, and he's completely opposed to evil, and he will never stand for evil, and he's not okay when people commit evil. He's never tempted by evil, he never does evil, and he never lets people get away with evil. And instead of the Bible downplaying that, the scripture celebrates this. Because this is one of the great aspects of the character of our God. Our God is righteous and just. And as an aspect of his justice, 
he's willing to punish those who do evil. What it means for us, brothers and sisters, is that we can also celebrate this part of God's character. You know, on the one hand, you might wonder to yourself, well, why, why does God do that? You know, why does he still inflict such judgment? Why can't he lighten up a little bit? And why can't he go easy? We readily understand and appreciate God's love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his kindness, his long-suffering. But we sometimes wonder about this grace and wrath, about this justice and wrath. Well, brothers and sisters, don't, don't diminish this part of God's character. It's a very central and beautiful aspect of his being. We're going to see that under this theme, God's justice is glorious and awe-inspiring. We're going to see in the first place the glory of God's justice, and secondly, the mercy in that justice. And so why does God insist on exercising justice? Why can't he lighten up a little bit? That's really the, the second question in our Lord's Day here this afternoon. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Why can't he just let things slide? Well, if you really think about that, brothers and sisters, just imagine... What kind of world do you live in if God lets things slide? On the one hand, you could think, well, it's really nice if that happened for me. Or maybe if I was mean to my brother and my, my dad sees that, and instead of spanking me, he lets me get away with it, that, that, that's really nice. Or if I deserve a detention, and if my teacher is kind to me and, and they don't keep me in for a detention, they let me go, then that, that's really nice. Or you think back to the time where you're speeding and the police officer pulls you over and you know you're in for it, but he only gives you a warning. You get away with a warning. You think to yourself, man, that's pretty sweet. Why can't God do it? Why can't he just let us get away with it? Well, imagine... Imagine if that happened all the time. Imagine if that happened against you. What would it be like if there's a bully at school who bullies you over and over and over again? And there's never any justice. No one ever calls him out on it. But he just keeps getting away with it. Imagine if someone cheats you, or someone steals from you, or someone slanders you. And imagine if he does it again and again, and if he gets away with it. Well, where's the justice? What kind of world are you living in? You know, real life, you take some of the biblical examples. Imagine you're Paul, you're, sorry, you're David. And you live in this country where the king is chasing after you. You've literally done nothing wrong. You've served him your whole life. You've done everything you can for him. And your father-in-law is just really mad at you because he's very jealous of you. He's envious of you. And he wants you dead. And for year after year after year, you've got to flee in order to try to preserve your life. Or imagine you're David's daughter, you're Tamar, and your brother Amnon rapes you. What would it be like if there's no justice in this world, brothers and sisters? If you think about that kind of world, you realize the glory of God's justice. 
In Psalm 99, we read about that. First verse there. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And as a result of that, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. David celebrates the justice of God. The Lord is a just God. He's reigning on the throne. He sees all things. He rules over all things. And part of his holiness, part of his separateness, is that he's a God who always exercises justice. And the result is that he's just full of praise for God. What it means is in the first place, when it talks about righteousness, it means that the Lord always does what's right. He never sins. He never does what's wrong. He never acts towards other people in a way that's inappropriate. You know, sin is in the first place, it's relational. It's about what kind of relationship you have with the people around you. Well, the Lord is always in right relationship with the people he's created, with his creation, with the angels, within himself. There's always this right relationship. He always does what's right. And then when the Lord looks down in this world... And when he sees people who act in injustice, when they're not righteous, then that's something that upsets him. That's not okay. He's not all right with evil. And so he does whatever it takes to set things right again. And that's really what justice is. You take the steps that are needed to make sure that righteousness is restored. What it means is real life. When the nations took example of the Israelites, for example... And the Lord, he said, that's not okay. And so we raise up judges. He raises up kings. And they fight against their enemies. And they rescue them from their enemies. And righteousness is restored. The people live at peace. They live in safety once again. Well, that's God's justice. He's acting in justice to make that happen. But when the rich take advantage of the poor, the Lord looks down on that. He sees the poor and he says, that's not okay. That's not all right with him. And so he acts in justice. He brings down the schemes of the wicked on their own heads. So things are really difficult for the wicked. And in the end, he rescues the poor people, the righteous people, from their hands. In the end, a lot of what God does is that he brings down the evil of the wicked on their own heads. And that's that's an essential part of exercising justice. Part of it is, is the restoring to righteousness. But many times the way that happens is also through punishing those who do evil. What God's really saying here is, is he's saying the reason he can't let sin go unpunished is because that goes against his character. You sin, and that will bring consequences. And God will bring those consequences down on your head. In Psalm 62, David calls on the Lord's people to trust in God and to look to him alone. It's quite a, quite a thing he says here. David himself is being attacked. He has these strong enemies who are around him. They're attacking him. And he's in that place, he says, at one stage, he feels like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. He's about to go down. But what does he do? Is he trusts in God. You never, ta- you never read that he takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't take revenge on his enemies. And the reason for that is because the very last verse of the psalm, 
He says, for you render to each one according to his work. I don't need to take revenge. I don't need to do it, take it in my own hands. Because, Lord, you will do that. You render to each person according to his works. And that's a theme that runs through the scriptures. If you have your eyes open for it, it comes back over and over and over again. I'll just refer to a few passages with you just to, to get a sense of that, the breadth of that. It happens, for example, in Ezekiel 7.27. The Lord says there, according to their way, I will do to them. And according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. The Israelites were really sinning in the days of Ezekiel. And the Lord says, well, as you do, I'm going to do to you. And then you're going to know that I'm God. Or Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming soon, says the Lord Jesus, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. You will receive according to what you have done. That's what God's justice demands. And what that means is that there's blessings for righteousness and that there's curse for evil. And so you read a psalm like Psalm 112, really celebrates the, the blessings that come on the righteous man. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. For the man who's gracious, who's merciful, who's righteous, who gives to the poor, God says his offspring will be the mighty in the land. Wealth and riches are in his house. Light dawns for him. He's never moved. He's not afraid of bad news. He trusts in the Lord, his heart is firm, and he looks in triumph on his adversaries. It's a really beautiful life for those who are righteous. And then the psalmist flips it around the last verse, Psalm 112. The very last verse, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. If you're wicked, God says, I'm not going to bless you. I'm not going to look after you. I'm not going to make sure things go good for you. I will bless the righteous man. And the wicked man will see it, and he will gnash his teeth. It is God's glory that he frustrates those who do evil, and that he blesses those who are righteous. We confess in Lord's Day 4 that God is terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins. And this is how he, he deals with that, brothers and sisters. He gives back to you according to what you've done. If you sin, if you live in sin, if you continue in sin, then he says he's going he's gonna to bring judgment, this wrath down against you. And that, in the end, that becomes a very serious matter. It's not a little thing to fall under God's wrath. It's not a little thing to, to sin and to continue in sin and to think, oh, it doesn't matter, nobody really cares, and I can get away with it, and there's no consequence. 
We heard this morning, we heard the message of what happened for the sons of Jacob. You know, some of these men, they sinned. And it had profound consequences, not just for themselves, but especially for their descendants. And there's other men who lived in holiness and righteousness before God. And that led to great blessing for their descendants. Well, if you, if you read through the scriptures, then it talks about some of the, the anger that God eventually brings down against those who live in sin. In Psalm 5, it says in verse 4 there about God's fiercely burning anger, it says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. He doesn't take pleasure in that. If you commit evil, if you do wrong, God says he hates those who do wrong. He abhors those who are bloodthirsty or deceitful. He destroys those who tell lies. Psalm 7, he takes it a step further. In verse 11 there, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared him for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. David says, Psalm 7, every day God is exercising his wrath. If a man does not repent, then God says he will wet his sword and he will shoot his deadly arrows. That's his justice. It arouses an anger and it burns deep within him. And that anger has consequences. You read the stories, that's, that's why there's so many stories in the Bible of the, God's dealings with his people. You read the stories and you read the consequence of the sins of the people. You think about their, their sins in the desert. They're rescued out of Egypt. They're coming through the desert and the people grumble and complain. Well, Numbers 11, it says, as a result of this complaining, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. And thousands of people die. Now, at first, he didn't strike them with anger. The first time he complained, he was merciful. The second time, he was merciful. The third time, he's merciful. But there comes a time where he does judge them. And thousands die. And you keep reading the stories in Numbers. There's a couple more stories where thousands more die. God's anger is aroused. And he does judge the people. It's something that happens through the history of his people. You read over and over again of these stories. And God tells us it's something that, that's perpetuated till today. In Romans 1, we read about how the wrath of God comes down against those who rebel against him. In Romans 1, verse 18, if people harden themselves in their sin, if they reject God, if they go their own way, then in the end the Lord says that he will give them over to sexual immorality, to impurity, and to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. He often expresses his wrath. That is his glory to bring down on people's heads what they, own, what they do for themselves. And so our Lord is not soft on sin, brothers and sisters. He doesn't go light on it. Sin's not a little matter, but it's a big deal. If the preacher Ecclesiastes 12 is a man who is near the end of his life. He's doing a lot of reflection. He looks back on his life and he thinks now, 
Now, what's it really all about? And then he shows how empty it is to live apart from the Lord. Talks about all the things you can do, but if you do it apart from the Lord, it doesn't amount to anything. And he concludes with these words, Ecclesiastes 12, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and keep his commands because he's going to bring every deed into judgment. Real life, the act of a selfishness or pride or greed out of lust or envy, then one day God's judgment comes down on that. It doesn't only happen at the end of time. It's not only the great day of judgment, but it already happens now. The catechism, we confess that God punishes already now. That's a biblical thought. Some people don't realize that. They think that they can sin, that they carry on with sin, and that there's never consequences, that they can get away and they can float through life, they can sit on the fence and they can carry on and nothing ever happens. It's not a big deal. The Lord says it is a big deal. Sin is offensive to him. It's evil. And he's not okay with it. The truth is actually, it's not as if you get away with anything. Whatever you do influences your life. One of the biggest ways, brothers and sisters, is it changes who you become. The decisions you make today impact the decisions you can make tomorrow. A person doesn't wake up one morning to be a raging alcoholic. Now, that happens over time. You make a choice. You do it a bunch of times. You live that kind of a lifestyle for a while, and it's only later that's who you become. A person doesn't become a proud, a bitter, or cynical person overnight. A couple doesn't become divorced overnight. Now, these things happen as a result of the choices, the decisions that people make over the course of time. It's one of the things God talks about in Galatians 6. He says, you reap what you sow. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let's not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Uses one of the most common images back then, image from agriculture, you reap what you sow. If you're into gardening, you, you sow some broccoli, and you're not going to reap corn. You're going to reap a corn plant. You're going to reap a broccoli plant. Try to get it right. If you sow to seed to, to please the sinful nature, you're not going to have a good life. You're going to reap what you sow. 2 Timothy 5, the Lord says, or 1 Timothy 5, he says, it's often later. Even the hidden things, the secret things in life, God says they always come out. 
Not right away, but later they will. And if it's good things, then eventually everybody will see it. If it's evil things, eventually everybody will see that too. You will reap what you sow. It's one of the reasons why sometimes it's hard to get old. There's some old people who reaped a lot, who've sown a lot of sin in their lives. They committed a lot of evil. They never, never dealt with it. And then when they get old, then they start reaping. And they reap in their own life, and they reap in their children's lives, they reap in their friend's life and their family life something that they've sown over the course of their lives. It's a pretty sad existence. It's a pretty hard place to be. It's not the Lord's desire for you, brothers and sisters. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to suffer. He made you for relationship. That's who he is. He's a God of relationship. And he made you for relationship. He wants you to have relationship with him. He wants you to have relationship with each other. He teaches you how to do it. He offers to help you. He offers to give you everything that you need. Whatever you need, you can ask him, and he'll give it to you. He promises you his Holy Spirit, and the Spirit will live in you. If you sow to please the Spirit, then from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. That's the promise of Galatians 6. He wishes to give you his Spirit. He wishes you to walk in righteousness. He wishes you to share in the beautiful life that he has and the beautiful life that he gives to his people. And so he calls you to repent of sin. He calls you to come back to him, to be restored to him. You know, real life, sometimes it happens that people get away with whatever they do. There's never any consequences. It was the real struggle for the psalmist, Psalm 73. He sees this wicked man. He's violent. He's wicked. He does all these terrible things, and there's no consequences ever. His life goes on. And Asaph, he just really struggles with that because he says, I don't know what I'm doing trying to serve God with my whole life. And it's only much later that he realizes that the man is sowing to his own destruction. It's only when he comes into church that he realizes the destruction that this man's bringing upon himself. There's often time. And why is there time? Well, the reason for the time is because God wants his people to repent. He is slow to anger. anger. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. When you sin, it's not as if you sin today and immediately tomorrow you're punished. Sometimes that happens. Oftentimes, he waits. And he gives you time. And he gives you more time. It takes him a really long time to become angry. Because that is the glory of his character. Because he doesn't delight in punishing. And so what does he want during the time? He gives you time, Peter says, to repent. In Peter's day, you had some of these people, they were scoffing. They were saying, ah, God just carries on. Everything goes on. Nothing ever happens. He's never going to come in judgment. The world goes on from the days of our forefathers. And they scoffed. And they mocked that God would ever do anything. 
And Peter says, don't be so foolish. It is true that it takes time. The Lord gives time. But he says in the first place, he says, you need to realize that God can act in judgment. He already did. Think the flood. Everyone, everything was wiped out because of the evilness of mankind. Can God judge? Will God judge? Just look at the flood. You know what can happen. And then Peter says, God gives time. Because the one thing he wants is he wants you to repent. 2 Peter 2 verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. He does not wish any to perish. Ezekiel 33:11, the Lord does not take pleasure in the death of the sinner, but that he would turn and live. Turn. Why won't you turn from your sins? The Lord pleads with his people. I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I give you time to repent. You have time, brothers and sisters. You often have time. It's not time to carry on your sin. It's time to turn away from sin. It's time to turn back to your God. Well, plead to the Lord for his grace, brothers and sisters. Use the time that he's given you. If you don't, then the end is eternal judgment. God talks about that in a few places. There is a great day of judgment coming. And that's when God is going to set everything right. Finally, completely, eternally, he'll set it all right. He'll exercise his final justice. Daniel 12, verse 2. God says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. There's life or there's shame and contempt. Matthew 25, 41. They were told that those who didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, those who didn't walk in his ways will be told, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or in Revelation 14, verse 9, we're told of the eternal destruction that will come on those who reject Christ and walk in darkness. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The greatest thing, brothers and sisters, is that God promises you that if you do seek his face, if you do turn from your sin, he will show you mercy. That's why he gives you time, so that you humble yourself, that you confess your sins to him, that you ask him for his grace and forgiveness, and that you receive his kindness in your life. And he, his greatest desire is that none of us is missing, that we all share in the righteousness of Christ. He sent Christ because he loves us, because he wishes to redeem us. But he says here, if you reject Christ, I've done it all for you. I've literally done everything. And if you reject my son, if you don't want him, if you turn your back on him, then God says, then the only thing that's left is judgment. And then it is the eternal judgment for those who rejected the greatest gift of love, 
the gift of Christ. Well, do you, do you see something of the glory of your God, brothers and sisters? He's a righteous God. He loves righteousness and he executes justice. He's not okay with sin, but he will exercise his justice against those who have sinned against him and who refuse to repent. The greatest gift that, that he offers you is that you, you stand in awe of what he's done for you in Christ. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you life. He gives it as a free gift. And so he says, come to me and humble yourself and receive my forgiveness and walk in righteousness before me. Our only hope is in our Lord Jesus. Let's never flirt with sin. Let's never become apathetic. Let's hate sin. Let's free from it. Let's beat a steady path to the cross so on a daily basis we may be set free from all our sins. It is God's joy that you share in his eternal righteousness. Amen. We're going to sing together from hymn 14. Hymn 14 is the the story of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is living at a time where the Lord is going to execute his justice, not just against his people, but especially against the nations against whom, who, uh, who took advantage of his people. So hymn 14, the verses 1, 2, 3, 6, and 10.
Brothers and sisters, you now have the opportunity to give your thank offerings to the Lord. The collection this afternoon is for the, the work of the Canadian Reformed World Relief Fund. Sorry, no, no. The Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. Oh, man. It's for the seminary. We, uh, we didn't pray for them, but the students are entering into the final two weeks of exams. They have exams in the next couple of weeks, and after that they have the summer off. And so there's a lot of work that needs to happen for the students. There's a lot of work that needs to happen for the professors. Um, your collection is gratefully received to support this work, and your prayers are also. If you, you would yet pray for them, they would certainly uh, be blessed and appreciate that. Then after the, the collection, we're going to sing together to the praise of our God, hymn 70, the verses 1 through 4.
Receive now the blessing of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.